0: Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Alex Ventures. BIOS is a community of early-stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc.
1: We're thrilled to welcome Frank Nestle, CSO and Global Head of Research at Sanofi to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. A pleasure to
2: join you today, Janice.
1: To help host this episode, we're joined by special guest host, Brian Fisk, co-founder and CSO at Mythic Therapeutics. Brian, before we hop into things, would you mind giving our listeners a bit of background
0: on yourself and Mythic? Sure. Fantastic. So as as you just said, I'm chief scientific officer and co-founder at Mythic Therapeutics. We're a 30-person company out in Waltham, Massachusetts, focused on next-generation ADCs for oncology applications. We've been fortunate enough to work with a fantastic set of advisors and investors, including Alix and yourself. For myself, before Mythic, I was at Flagship Ventures, now Flagship Pioneering, although I left to start Mythic Independent of Flagship. And before flagship, I completed my PhD in cancer biology at MIT. Great to be here.
1: Thanks again, Brian, for joining us. And and Frank, we'd love if you could rewind the clock for us a bit, perhaps, and and share your background
2: and career overview with us to start. Absolutely. A a pleasure, Jazz, being with you today. Uh, My name is Frank Nestle. I'm the Global Head of Research and CSO at Sanofi. Uh, We're making medicines available across the world, uh, really across 100 countries with approximately north of 100,000 employees, but providing medicines and vaccines to millions of people. So a massive opportunity for impact. Uh, I started off at Sanofi in 2016 as the foundational therapeutic area head in immunology research. And I'm happy to say that we have now a few years later, 15 medicines in clinical development, a really thriving immunology portfolio. And uh, after that, I moved into my current role about two years ago. Uh, My background is that of a clinician and a scientist. Uh, I'm a, a trained dermatologist and clinical immunologist, but I'm ultimately driven by the quest to make a difference to patients by understanding disease mechanisms and translating those insights into therapeutics ideally, I have to say, precisely tailored to the needs of an individual patient or a patient population. Now, in terms of science, I was always fascinated, and that um, uh, has been my main focus uh, over, over the years uh, by the intricacies of the immune system, uh, an incredibly fascinating collection of cells circulating in and out uh, of body tissues and making their way through the blood into Uh, physiological states, but also pathological states. We have about 10 billion T cells circulating in our blood, and they provide this connected, highly connected system of surveillance and protection from pathogens and cancer. Uh, The pathogen protection story is clear to everybody after uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. But also, if uh, overstimulated, can get out of uh, hand and can cause destruction of tissues, for example, as part of autoimmune or the chronic inflammatory disease. Now, in addition, uh, a lot of my work has been focused on understanding the underlying genetic drivers and uh, also the genomics of disease, um, everything from genetic architecture of the human immune system, actually a a title of uh, a cell paper I published a few years back, uh, but also the genetic architecture, not only of human disease states, but also how human disease responds to therapeutics or how uh, genetics control what we call expression QTLs, various expressions of the genome uh, in terms of transcriptomes or proteomes or actually at the single cell level, uh, a whole range of uh, features you can now study in in patients. Fantastic, Frank, and
1: grateful for you joining us once again. Um, We'd love to ask, as we kick off episodes here really to help our audience uh, follow the arc of your career, you you mentioned some common threads, but we'd love if you can share if there's a North Star that's maybe tied your work together over the years, what's that been for you?
2: That's actually a great question uh, in terms of the complexity we are facing, uh, the choices we, we can make. But there's clearly a one north uh, star. If I look back at the last uh, uh, 20 or 30 years of of what I've been doing, it's making a difference to patients. And um, but combining that uh, with a curiosity, a relentless curiosity, I have to say, to understand the causality of disease playing out in patients, and then turning these hopefully causal insight or, or mechanistic insights into potential new medicines. That's that's really my North style and if I think about key forks in a row, um, I've been always inspired by personal experiences. And when I look at back at my own experience, uh, I, I was actually studying literature and philosophy in in Munich uh, uh, now a while back, but at the same time I was moonlighting in the local hospital as a, as a nurse assistant. You can imagine the the difference of worlds being in a a literature seminar uh, discussing the influence of Nietzsche on the music of Wagner, but then doing the night shift uh, on a hospital world. And and it was actually one of those forks in the road where I could have become uh, maybe a a, a journalist or a writer or become a a, a medic and a scientist. And I can really trace that fork in the road back to a a patient I was taking care of. I was working on a, a ward at, uh, where leukemia patients were, and these were typically young patients. And one of the signs uh, uh, was when disease got bad and, and fever kicked in, and patients experienced a septic attack, uh, that they required an ice cube, um, and you know they were essentially asking for ice cubes. So I brought this ice cube to that patient, uh, and and I, I thought hopefully he's going to make it, and. Uh, and when I came back the next day, uh, unfortunately the patient had died. Uh, and that was that fork in the road where I said, uh, "Look, I don't want to spend my time understanding the impact of Nietzsche on the music of Wagner, but I want to understand what went wrong with this patient and how can I make a difference to help this not occurring." Uh, and that that was driving my my whole career, I have to say. And and it started one to one as a practicing physician. You're in front of a patient, uh, you studied everything you can get your hand on, uh, textbooks, lectures, uh, journals, and then then you make the right, hopefully, treatment decision for for a patient. But uh, when I then um, moved on to become a clinical academic, a professor and a key opinion leader in the field, you Uh, You go further, you're not only trying to help that individual patients, but you try to understand general principles of disease mechanisms and try to translate into into therapeutics. You're writing the textbook chapters, you're writing the journal papers, and and you're discovering uh, the new science, but there was still something lacking in in that um, uh, type of activity. It was, where is the maximal impact? The maximal impact is when you turn all of that into a medicine, which at the beginning, it's, it's protected by intellectual property and, and, and giving revenue back for the investors. But then ultimately is gifted to society as a generic and hopefully lives on forever like aspirin does now, which actually was discovered and synthesized in 1899. Um, and it's still a medicine people take. So, uh, to move to pharma was a no-brainer because uh, I'm now overseeing a portfolio of more than 100 potential future med- medicines. I don't know how many of them will turn into an aspirin or uh, a, a, a very important medicine, but it's, it's just this this sheer opportunity of setting molecules on a journey of a long journey to patient impact and and then uh, putting a little bit of uh, a fair share of, of influence in in. This becoming hopefully a successful medicine. And I have to say, my ultimate dream was always to precisely tailor these medicines to patient populations in terms of precision medicine and then optimize risk and reward and ultimately uh, safety and efficacy for patients. And what a phenomenal
1: North Star that is, Frank. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I'll pass it off to Chris now to jump into our first topic here integrating AI in pharma drug development. Take it away, Chris.
3: Thank you, Chaz, and thank you so much again, Frank, for joining us. Building on that topic of jumping into pharma, for decades, the pharmaceutical industry has developed products built on a foundation of primarily incremental innovation, and for good reason when we're talking about therapeutics and patient health. But today, with the advent of big data, the development of AI and ML, and the rise of tech bio, the more historic paradigm is rapidly changing. So we'd love to kick things off and ask what are the challenges in the drug discovery and development pipeline where ai has in your opinion the greatest potential for impact or maybe said in another way what does ai and drug development mean to you
2: yeah thanks chris that's obviously a a very important question and uh, if you think about the economics of the industry it's surprising how productive the industry is uh, if you want to invest in a, a project which takes 10 to 13 years until this uh, medicine will reach a CVS near you where you have to spend another $2 billion where your chances are only a few percent, you would say, you know, how, how does this work? But uh, uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, together with uh, investors and, and patients and everybody involved and stakeholders ha- has, has got it to work. But I, ca- I can see as as you alluded to that there's a a transformational change coming and and that transformation in in terms of not only the economics uh, and productivity of the industry, but also of the quality of the products and how we are thinking about um, life science discoveries being applied uh, to novel medicines, to breakthrough medicines is completely changing. And And that's a lot of that is driven by the advent uh, of data sciences and the great convergence between life sciences, engineering, and data sciences. Now, if you think about drug discovery, it's actually a a linear process. I sometimes like to compare it with an assembly line. Think about this assembly line where you start with the understanding of patient biology and unmet need, you reveal a potential druggable target, You, you validate it typically with a tool compound, But then you're on a journey to optimize hundreds of attributes of that emerging medicine from lead identification to lead optimization to ultimately then running clinical trials. And at each of those stages, we're optimizing the specificity of the medicine, the potency, we're avoiding off targets, we're optimizing drug-like properties like absorption, biodistribution in the body, uh, which we call then, you know, adding drug-like features, uh, we're optimizing toxicology and and safety, Um, all of those optimization processes are very data-rich. Now the paradox is while this process is data-rich, the only one who collects those data are essentially AI, human intelligence. So they're typically how decisions are made, uh, individuals sitting around a table and and uh, in committees and uh, a lot of immune, human intelligence is present, but but uh, these data have not been um, collected in a systematic way. Uh, so what we are trying to do is to add to human intelligence, AI, AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, And and we call it uh, building of an AI research factory. Uh, I I told you this analogy of an assembly line where each step of optimizing this molecule or these molecules which are then graduating to become medicines, uh, at each step, we are collecting data in a a systematic way and we are feeding predictive models uh, with the goal to individually help at each step decision making of, of, of the chemists or the biologists or the or the clinicians and, and, and scientists by allowing AI to um, come in with full force uh, in terms of its predictive qualities. Now, what you could also think is that there are actually interrelatedness of data between different steps, and that we ultimately build a grand model of, of an AI research factor. We are not there yet, but you can see where the journey is going and how we're completely rethinking how to run this uh, assembly line uh, in a a completely different
0: way. Fantastic. It's very interesting, this concept of an AI assembly line. So Sanofi has announced multiple collaborations with companies including Oaken, Excientia, Atomwise, and Silico. How do you leverage that type of advanced technology across the R and D organization or the AI assembly line, as you as you put it, and how do these partnerships support your larger digital strategy?
2: Yeah, I, w- I would actually call it the AI research factory, which is which is like you can you can put it as a as a in the context of thinking about it as, a, as an assembly line. But we absolutely are subscribing uh, to the not invented here uh, syndrome, which is like we're only one x, and there's a thousand x out there in terms of innovation. We're committed. Uh, to connecting to that outside world. And uh, I, I have to say, about one third of our portfolio medicines are coming from uh, uh, outside collaborators or where outside collaborators have been uh, um, very important contributors. Now, I would also like to say that we've built incredible foundations internally in terms of a, uh, what we call a 1AI digital platform, uh, which is built by our digital colleagues. Uh, which is supporting the AI research factory. So we have actually now a uh, our workbench where we can plug and play uh, outside uh, collaborative opportunities in, in our own workflows. Um, and sometimes we do that, or we completely leave an outside workflow intact until it comes back at a certain stage, for example, a, a clinical candidate stage. Now, in terms of a few examples, uh, we're very excited to Partner with Okin. It's actually a French American company. Thomas Cloussel, Gilles Weinuib are absolute forward looking AI drug hunters. And uh, what we do with Okin is uh, we're focusing on potential clinical trial design and predictive biomarker insights into core areas such as lung cancer, breast cancer, multiple myeloma. Uh, What the Okin platform has is, is two, I think, very distinguishing features. One is they are masters in uh, what we call federated machine learning. So they're masters in uh, accessing data sets within the the right privacy context, but then allowing uh, machine learning approaches on these data sets and ultimately create a a meta data set, which takes advantage of of learnings from these uh, federated uh, data sets. The other area uh, of um, distinction for Okin is digital pathology. Every single cancer patient, uh, gets a biology, gets gets a biopsy um, for diagnosis, and that biopsy biopsy gets processed, uh, uh, gets then stained uh, with hematoxylin and eosin, and uh, and uh, a diagnosis is made. So what Okin has established is a a digital platform where you can run AI on these uh, slides and sections and extract uh, important features such as biomarkers or insights into uh, patient uh, stratification approaches, so, so quite a quite an interesting collaboration. Another collaboration is, is with Accentia. It's a company based in Oxford in, in the UK. Andrew Hopkins, David Hallett, and others uh, are doing a fantastic job in, in uh, really leading what is probably one of the most advanced small molecule drug discovery companies in the AI space. And, and what, what um, we as a team and I particularly liked about their approaches. That they have a patient-first pharma tech approach, and um, uh, we have a collaboration with them with up to 15 small molecules. Uh, they, they are, uh, you know, we we uh, determine the targets. Uh, they're, they're they're getting going with uh, their AI drug discovery uh, tech, and uh, one of the big um, uh, goals is to obviously change uh, the timelines of small molecule drug discovery, Uh, the typical timelines, and we know this from comparisons with, uh, um, via approaches like KMR, is is four to five years until uh, uh, an IND, and and we're trying to cut these timelines significantly, and also uh, thereby changing the the productivity uh, of of our overall um, pharmaceutical pipeline output. Now there are there are other uh, uh, collaborations we've we've been engaging with Atomwise uh, Abram Heifetz, who is the CEO, actually was sitting across the hall of Geoff Hinton, who started the deep learning AI uh, revolution after after that long AI winter, um, and uh, and they have a platform called AtomNet, and they help us uh, to uh, do what what you call virtual screening. They have a an a- a proprietary library of more than three trillion synthesizable compounds, which is a, an enormous chemical space, and uh, and truly helps us to to go to compound um, structures and chemistry uh, where, where nobody else uh, has been going before. And then finally, in silico medicines, Alexa Runkov is, is also one of the pioneers in the field, and and there we especially. Uh, had a collaboration with our CIPR Institute. This is the Sanofi Institute of uh, Biomedical Research in Suzhou in China and uh, um, the co-location with some of the uh, Silico team in, in Suzhou and uh, the, the way how we completely rethink uh, the productivity and, and, and output of this CIPR Institute in China uh, was a perfect match with what Alex and the InSilico uh, medicines team are, are trying to do in the future. So you can see we're a very prolific partner uh, in the industry, we made some of the biggest uh, AI deals in the industry, and we're doing this not because we don't want to do anything in-house, but but uh, because we, we strongly believe in an open innovation network approach to bring AI to patients.
3: And that's a great message and almost transition point as we think about uh, one element of the North Star you described earlier, which is being driven by precision medicine and the quest to understand disease mechanisms for translation into therapeutics, hopefully precisely tailoring these therapeutics to the needs of an individual patient or patient population. So as we think about these partnerships and as we think about the past decade, we've been seeing this shift from one size fits all therapies to more precision and more targeted therapeutics, initially led in the oncology space and now expanding to fields such as immunology. To dive deeper into that vein, and you've started to touch on this already, how will AI and ML continue to drive progress into precision medicine?
2: Yes, that's a great question. And then just to um, uh, reframe the question, there are two big areas uh, in the research and discovery arena where AI uh, uh, makes a, a, a massive uh, impact. Um, and one one is the molecular design space. And we talked about small molecules in in, with, in the previous question, but the other one is the precision medicine question about what are first investing in class targets. Uh, that's actually t- typically at the beginning of a journey of a molecule, but then also how can you translate then these novel medicines or, or molecules into an appropriate patient population, ideally connected to uh, an appropriate biomarker. And, and that's also where AI uh, has and, and had a, a major impact. Uh, it all starts with um, generating what we call molecular disease maps. Uh, these molecular disease maps are becoming uh, more complex and, and, and more rich in data sets by the day. Uh, it started with mainly genetic data sets, but now we have expression data sets at, at every single level from RNA to uh, proteins um, uh, to metabolites. And we uh, look at these um, molecular disease maps actually at the single cell level. And as you know, the cell is the, the smallest unit of life. So the single cell resolution uh, and the integration of all of those omics or orthogonal data sets provide us with a, 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 an incredible space of, of data to interrogate. Now, if you want to build ID target ID engines, Uh, which tell us, uh, you know, is this target of interest in a a subset of patients, in a non-responder population? Is this uh, of relevance in a a certain disease context, like a severe exacerbation? We need to run all of these uh, massive data sets through algorithms. And these algorithms, a lot of them are machine learning based. They can be as simple as a clustering algorithm. Uh, but they all have one feature: they reduce dimensionality. They they uh, give us a um, uh, a signal in in these sometimes very noisy data sets, and then uh, allow our teams to ultimately take those targets and then and then validate them and 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 make two compounds against them. It's very important that we create these data sets um, uh, with a community perspective. There's a lot of private-public partnerships, uh, especially in the precision medicine arena. Everything from uh, Open Targets, UK Biobank, the Accelerated Medicine Partnership, IMI—we uh, are all very, we are, we are very active in all of those uh, arenas, and uh, it, it's very important that we're all coming together to uh, collect these very important patient-derived data. Now, in terms of identifying patient subsets, uh, I told you about Okin, where we uh, work on biomarkers based on digital pathology. But we also use a lot of orthogonal data sets, genetics expression data sets to ultimately uh, get to a, um, a molecular perspective on, on patient subsets. And just to give you an idea, uh, just uh, for, for atopic dermatitis, we have n- nearly 10,000 uh, data sets uh, in terms of genetics. Uh, we have uh, 20,000 samples on, on, with, with genomics data. We have uh, uh, skin biopsies from over 500 patients. So, so enormous data sets we're, we're using to ultimately uncover these molecular disease maps, identifying molecular disease strata, and then ultimately use that to uh, discover biomarker to more precisely guide in you know, a precision medicine spirit, our future pathway drugs to patients uh, and to the right patients. So as, as we consider these applications of AI and really tech
0: more broadly to drug development and precision medicine, Uh, there will be those, there have been those that point out that there really hasn't been a a big win yet in the clinic. So where have you seen the impact of AI in your pipeline? And are there any programs that you'd like to highlight in particular?
2: Yeah, it's interesting uh, that when we make our judgments, we typically have a rear view mirror perspective. And obviously, there's a, a lot of what we're doing will materialize in the future, and we might come back to that perspective. But uh, if I look at uh, our our pipeline, uh, the, the success stories, uh, probably the most advanced success stories are in drug discovery related to small molecules. Already two thirds of our molecules uh, for lead optimization um, are, are optimized with AI-based uh, predictive models. Uh, I talked about these drug-like attributes, but also if you think about uh, DMPK, um, which is essentially about predicting a first human dose, uh, uh, 100% of our molecules have predictive modeling attached. Toxicology safety, 100% of our molecules. Um, and, and just to give you an, an idea of how this impacts productivity, uh, I told you that it takes about four to five years to get to IND with a small molecule and these are industry timelines which have been stubbornly stable. You know, This is not like, this is like over the last decade and more. Um, but, I hope that this time is different because uh, we're already seeing that when we typically uh, uh, you know, synthesize about 5,000 small molecules uh, to get to a clinical candidate and, and to a, a, um, a medicine tested in, in, in a phase one study, uh, now we're seeing we can do this just with a few hundred mole, uh, molecules. And that obviously uh, cuts our timelines, it cuts the, uh, the that the money we need, and it allows you to to do more with with, with less. So there, I'm I'm seeing the uh, the impact of of AI and small molecule drug discovery playing out as we speak. And by the way, this is one of the main reasons why, for example, we did the Accenture deal or the Atomwise deal, the Silico deal. Uh, we see a lot of opportunity changing the economics of the industry uh, by accelerating timelines. Um, now coming back to precision medicine. Uh, precision medicine is the other arena and we're running uh, as as you said in oncology this is the uh, now already um, a very well established paradigm you takeda uh, was becoming the leader in in the field of checkpoint therapies by applying a precision medicine approach uh, using pdl1 as a uh, guidepost and a biomarker for for uh, uh, you know associating patients with response uh, our very own dupixent uh, is, is a drug, an anti-L4, L13 antibody, a one-in-a-kind drug opening up type 2 inflammation uh, in, in patients. Uh, we have, uh, uh, in this case, also eosinophils, for example, uh, as, as a biomarker which can guide us where, where, where type 2 patients are. So uh, I, th- I think there's a, a lot already going on, but if, you, if I think about AI and machine learning, they're currently running a trial in systemic lupus erythematosus Uh, one of those enigmatic diseases with many different clinical manifestations underlying, uh, multi-fold of underlying molecular uh, mechanisms. We're running an anti cd 4 ligand monoclonal antibody clinical trial uh, where we're using an SLE, um, a systemic lupus erythematosus molecular disease maps, one of those maps I I described where we saw specific patient subsets and and, uh, what these patient subsets are, distinguished by uh, different types of mechanistic uh, themes uh, in these patients. And some of them are more associated or less associated with anti ct 4 ligand. And so we are running this also with um, uh, predictive biomarkers uh, uh, associated uh, to ultimately then land that therapeutic in, 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 a, in a, a much uh, higher efficacy uh, type of way in, in patients. We'll see how that uh, trial will read out. And then one final comment. Uh, uh, or example is is how we're using uh, AI in dermatology where uh, Sanofi is uh, not only on its way to become a a leading player in immunology, but dermatology is is a key arena. And uh, uh, we're working with um, uh, Professor Dina Katabi at MIT. uh, And uh, Dina came up with that that, uh, very, very uh, smart idea to use an existing technology like your wireless router. You have... Everybody has in, in a house, but to uh, reprogram it uh, to literally sense uh, and detect through walls, like a wireless router does, uh, the itching and scratching behavior of, of patients. So we can uh, use that device uh, Dina created um, uh, with with her team to uh, essentially through walls sense uh, patients' motion and scratch behavior while asleep, and thereby establishing a continuous variable, a continuous endpoint, which is very relevant to the disease in question here, which is atopic dermatitis, uh, and ultimately, hopefully, also uh, not only uh, guiding us in terms of treatment uh, decisions and, and, and uh, optimal uh, treatment approaches, but, but also becoming a, a clinical trial endpoint, uh, which uh, allows then uh, pharma companies such as us to, to run better and most more effective trials uh, with less patients Uh, And with more
3: clinical success. It seems clear that computation, AI, ML, data, even just from the examples you've given, Frank, have an incredible opportunity, not only in drug development, as you've described, but also in clinical practice and the practice of medicine. And as we think about the potential that computation can bring into the healthcare, biotech, pharma spaces, I think we might also agree that it's still in the early stages. And we'd love your thoughts as we think about this to understand maybe what are some of the key limitations holding us back and also potentially your hopes on or your expectations on what are maybe some of the key technologies that will overcome those challenges and bring us forward.
2: Yeah, important question again. Some of it might have to do with the fact that we really have to build the foundations. We have to re-architect whole companies who have been growing up like Sanofi, uh, 30 years, 300 acquisitions. But overall, the pharmaceutical industry is 150 years old and has a long history of doing things in a, in a certain way. And But the problem is it's building foundations not necessarily a, a, a KPI of a company uh, like Sanofi. So, so it's always an, an extra expense you have to do when you're You're doing this to invest in the future. So you need very strong leadership, like under our CEO, Paul Hudson, our our, uh, head of R&D, John Reed, uh, to to really drive that uh, type of investment. I think in terms of computing power, we're making great progress in terms of algorithms, uh, generative AI. I mean, we saw what language models can do, uh, uh, GPT-3, pre-trained transformers, uh, amazing what Uh, what can be done, again, uh, generated by traversal networks, uh, explainable AI even. So there's a lot going on in algorithms. But the ultimate bottleneck, uh, I would say, is is the data. Uh, And right now, data often exists in silos. They're fraught with uh, missing values or zeros, as we call them. Uh, They're not labeled correctly. They're difficult to find. Uh, And and that's probably one of the biggest um, hurdles to generate and and, and then ultimately make them ready for access of high quality data. Uh, and that whole effort of generating, aggregating, normalizing, processing the data, sometimes outweighs the actual analysis uh, effort. So, so to put a lot of effort into that uh, domain is, is I think what a, a strategic, uh, decision need, needs to be from from uh, from very senior leaders in 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 in, in uh, the appropriate companies, pharmaceutical companies, in that case. Uh, the other area of of uh, what hold, what's holding us back is ironically uh, the area of data protection, which is uh, as obviously a, a, a very uh, a positive side. Uh, the right policies and regulations in terms of data and consent are absolutely necessary. But since uh, these types of approaches are highly fragmented uh, across countries, uh, they are fragmented uh, across healthcare systems, it's very difficult sometimes to then get access to data in, under the right uh, policies and, and regulations and, and under the right data protection context. And uh, if there's one um, probably big request to policymakers and uh, uh, country leaders uh, across the globe is to, uh, allow uh, data to become the next currency as we've been allowing uh, currencies to to freely travel uh, through the um, uh, 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 through the world and and that might be tokenization that might be uh, uh, sp- specific new approaches to uh, uh, I, I, uh, de-identify data um, that those approaches are going to be absolutely mission critical for the continued success story of of uh, applying computation to biology, life sciences, and and to the pharmaceutical industry. I already mentioned federating approach, federated approaches to data uh, is is, is a great idea and and can help um, uh, to navigate some of the uh, uh, data protection and policy and regulation uh, bottlenecks. Uh, But that's certainly, if you would ask me, one of the most important areas we need to crack to. Uh, 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 enable progress on on the data science journey we're on, and that brings us to our our second topic of the podcast
0: today, uh, which is digital healthcare and patient centricity in R and D. Uh, and so, Frank, you were just talking about uh, some challenges in in AI. In June of two thousand twenty two, I understand Sanofi launched an in house digital accelerator that brings together a team of experts from outside healthcare. To brainstorm alternative solutions to these types of problems and break the mold of traditional pharma endeavors. So, can you tell us a little bit about the accelerator?
2: Yeah, that's a great uh, example of how Sanofi, a, a huge uh, organization, can truly think out of the box. Literally, uh, it's an out of the box idea by Emmanuel Frenar and and the digital team, and, uh, creating a co-working space at arm's length from. From our offices uh, in in a uh, literally like a, a warehouse space where you assemble uh, digital talents and and let them work freely on the next uh, big um, breakthroughs in in AI enabled medicine. And the team is developing integrated platforms, data solutions to better engage with, uh, for example, healthcare, healthcare professionals. Uh, they shorten the distance between the patient and a treatment. Uh, uh, they they uh, think about end to end digital campaigns, uh, educating um, HCPs about disease and possible solutions for patients. Um, so uh, a great example how even in a in a big company um, uh, which uh, obviously uh, has gone through many iterations of uh, organizational change, uh, you can have these out of the box ideas um, where, where true innovation can accelerate to patients in, in ways like, for example, a, a biotech would do it, um, so a great example. Right, and I guess recognizing it's
0: early days, are there any uh, particular examples or um, outcomes that have that have come out of that effort that you'd like to highlight?
2: It's early days, I mean, there are now six minimal viable products which are on their way. Um, I hope I can come back for another podcast to, to give you then the, the proof points.
3: Wonderful. Frank, we'd love to have you back for another podcast to talk more about the <laughs> that Fe is building and the points of connection and advances to R&D that you've been highlighting along the way. But as we think about this patient-centric R&D ecosystem, in recent years, we've seen the industry, and you've highlighted on this already, uh, place particular emphasis on patient-centric data, uh, integrating that back into the R&D process. So we'd love to learn more about how Sanofi is doing the same through real-world evidence and how it's integrating clinical knowledge earlier into the R&D process to improve patient outcome.
2: Yeah, so understanding patient trajectories, especially uh, real-world patient trajectories, are are going to be uh, very important. Uh, You can use these types of insights by thinking about improving study feasibility or sample size optimization or endpoint modeling, or just to compare data, we have a, a journey mapper uh, uh, to uh, integrate these uh, real world data. And maybe I'll give you um, uh, two examples. Uh, one is uh, what we call the immuno lab, uh, which is an, uh, uh, a setup originally uh, established to uh, get an indication expansion exercise around Dupixent. And at that time, we, uh, we dived into real-world data for more than 70 million patients. And, uh, and we did a, 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 a wonderful exercise which ultimately got, uh, gave us a, a roadmap for 11 new indications. And if you follow the story of the PIGSEND and its march through uh, different type two indications, everything from atopic dermatitis, asthma, chronic renal sinusitis with nasal polyps, eosinophilic esophagitis, all of those new indications we were getting or moving the, the, the compound in were guided by uh, immuno lab type uh, real world exercise which gave us confidence that you could move a uh, medicine into a certain patient uh, population. So this immunolab is like an industry first uh, 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 at, at scale medical evidence and hypothesis generator and, and uh, it's a totally new way to, to think about uh, Patient uh, need to think about positioning of a molecule in a certain patient population to compare it with standard of care and and to do all of this uh, uh, in in a in a real world contracts. Now you have to understand the constraints of real world data. Uh, they are obviously not comparable to a randomized controlled situation, uh, but they give you they give you a lot of touch points and 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 waypoints to ultimately and make a decision how your clinical trial uh, would look like, which is still the gold standard of, of uh, uh, providing medical evidence. Another example is REGAIN. Uh, uh, it's it's a, an acronym for real world and genomic Data based asthma insight through network analysis, a mouthful. But essentially what it is, and this was working with Mount Sinai, Eric Schatz, Shem- Semaphore, uh, the National Jewish uh, uh, in, on a on a study in in asthma where the goal was to use AI to predict when a person will have an asthma attack. Um, uh, uh, More than, uh, I I think it's 11 patients are dying from from asthma every every day in the US. And uh, um, in a a collaboration with these partners, uh, we um, devised a a real world study uh, where asthma patients are are handed out mobile devices, uh, such as uh, Bluetooth enabled inhalers to track their medication e-spirometers to track lung function, and then the mobile phones to track activity and environmental data. Uh, And with that, you get these high-density data sets, and uh, you can then number crunch them, you analyze them, and and, uh, the goal is to discover additional biomarkers, which actually will predict if you have an an asthma attack, and and that allows you then, for example, to run a clinical trial, because uh, you you have uh, a, a necessary statistical setup to, to do this, this trial within your lifetime. Uh, so we are combining this then also with longitudinal molecular studies uh, to understand disease trajectories, uh, and all of that together, it will give us a, a better insight into what ultimately is required from a molecular target uh, to do uh, disease intervention, but also give us a completely new perspective on how real world Uh, uh, patient journeys with asthma look like and focus our efforts on the real problem of patients.
3: I love that emphasis on focusing and the example on focusing, how how these technologies can be applied to really focus on patients. So taking this in a slightly different direction and expanding more broadly, Frank, you've been phenomenal in giving us both high level and detailed uh, feedback. But we'd love to ask you a few rapid fire questions to hear your thoughts on the following technologies and applications of AI for patients. The main thesis of the question being are these technologies ready for prime time yet? Why or why not? And so, kick things off uh, digital biomarkers. Absolutely ready for prime, prime time. They fill a key unmet
2: need. Example is, is in neurology where, where trials just take too long, and that's why we don't make uh, the necessary investment. If, if you need a two or three year trial to, to get to an endpoint, uh, that's not uh, uh, what what a good trial uh, looks like. And if you, for example, in Parkinson's now have actigraphy or other approaches to get digital uh, biomarkers and composite endpoints, that will change the way how, for example, we do drug development in Parkinson's. I already mentioned e-spirometry in asthma. or I, I showed you uh, and I explained to you what what you can do by measuring its scratch behavior with with wireless technology. So this is all going to be the future. Now, if you would ask me what what's holding uh, that back, it's not the tech, it's not the unmet need, it's not the the willingness of of pharma to engage with it. It's it's that dialogue with regulators, and I I, I have to say they have been very responsive, and there's a there's a great uh, dialogue going on to ultimately move these digital biomarkers from a a, a nice to have and and uh, uh, to a a must-have endpoint uh, situation, and that will be absolutely key for future clinical trial uh, developments. All right, our next topic, clinical trial design through simulation. Absolutely. Uh, We, and and you could call it also clinical trial design via quantitative systems pharmacology. This is how we we call it at at Sanofi, um, the most mature applications of Modeling and simulation are in, in uh, pharmacokinetic modeling for dose, uh, what is your first in human dose and what is the scheduling. But you can think much more ambitious uh, in terms of uh, adding orthogonal data sets in these, in these quantitative systems pharmacology modeling approaches and where, where uh, ultimately you, you, you think about a virtual clinical trial, you're running on, on a, a certain pathway drug or you know, I have a specific example with a bi-specific molecule uh, we have in our portfolio where that team which does the, the predictive uh, modeling and simulation came up with a, a, a clear perspective on a, on a better dosing schedule and a, and a competitive uh, uh, TPP, which ultimately then helped this molecule, molecule to get to the next milestone. And so that that's happening as we speak, but with a lot more to come if we move from uh, the current algorithms which we're using, we're often using still ODM, uh, ordinary differential patient-based uh, modeling um, to uh, then more AI-based modeling.
3: Uh, it seems like the trend might be technologies are here and there's a lot more to come, but bearing in mind what you said earlier about patients' uh, privacy, we'd love to hear your thoughts on patient recruitment.
2: Yeah, so patient recruitment, uh, I, I didn't talk to you about our uh, decentralized clinical trial approaches. Uh, We uh, partnered early on in 2017, actually, before the pandemic with Science37, one of the leaders in that space. And uh, uh, everything is up for grabs, Uh, remote site selection, initiation, monitoring, uh, using uh, 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 these types of technologies to ensure continuity of of treatment for for patients, Uh, telemedicine uh, is now uh, uh, becoming a, an established part of the the, the healthcare system. And, and all of that has been massively accelerated via the pandemic. So I, while before the pandemic, I would have said, you know, this is going to take some time now, uh, after the pandemic or in the post-pandemic, we're, we're not really after the pandemic, we're in the post-pandemic uh, state, uh, We I, I see a clear future, not only for patient recruitment, but also remote patient monitoring uh, in in this context so um, uh, the, the pandemic one of the legacies of the pandemic is that the goalposts have changed for, for these types of approaches Wonderful. yep you, you mentioned remote
0: patient monitoring anything more to say there or...
2: no that's fine uh, I think I think it's part of that you said centralized clinical trial approach where end to end your every single piece of the, the classical clinical trial, approach is, is reimagined via uh, a combination of a, a, a virtual data-driven uh, approach plus a, a, a remote uh, distributed
3: site philosophy. Similarly, you touched on this as we thought about clinical trial design through simulation, but thoughts on digital twin technology? Yeah, Digital
2: twins are like the twins of clinical trial design and simulation. Uh, they are uh, uh, essentially giving you uh, the possibility to think about virtual patient populations. Um, again, they are the future. We just announced with BiomedX uh, a, uh, a crowdsourced competition for to build a team actually solving that. Uh, I don't think we are completely there yet, um, but the data are coming together, the algorithms, the compute power. Uh, and and ultimately, I would love at a, at a clinical candidate stage uh, um, or a pre-IND situation to to run my molecule in a virtual patient. Uh, I don't think we are there yet, uh, but that's that train has left the station, and uh, and it's it definitely a space to watch. And lastly, maybe maybe going a little bit off script, if I can,
0: um, you talked to quite a bit about the applications of AI to small molecules. You talked a little bit about Depixent, and some of the uh, clinical biomarkers and other AI approaches that you're working on there. Um, you know, at Mythic, we're very interested in next generation antibody drug conjugates, but I guess more, broad, more broadly to biologics or antibodies, protein-based therapeutics. Um, what do you see as, as, what's exciting that's going on there? Or how do you think that AI for biologics will play out more
3: specifically?
2: Yeah, so this is basically the question around AI in, impact on the molecular design space. Um, you typically have uh, two main questions. You have the the lead identification, the hit finding, um, uh, design question uh, where you ca- have to come up with your uh, foundational structure of a molecule, and, and then you have to uh, uh, run it through an optimization process. As I mentioned, a lot of the paradigm of doing it has been established in uh, the small molecule world. Uh, now, we at Sanofi, um, and, and I've been a, a major champion of that, we've we've turned ourselves in a leader in the biologics field. We were uh, one-third biologic when I joined in 2016. Uh, we're now two-thirds biologics. We are we're among the, in the top quartile in the industry in, in, in terms of uh, biologics and biologics, including Bi-specifics, um, uh, precision-activated biologics, uh, the modified biologics, ADC biologics. Um, what's missing is an end-to-end digital biologics pipeline like we we, we have now uh, in 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 place, at least in a in a. Uh, a minimal viable product 1.0 version for small molecules, and, and that's going to be one big goal. Uh, we've been all uh, be, we have, we've all been excited by the breakthrough of, of AlphaFold uh, and and and, and, and uh, predicting uh, tertiary structures of proteins uh, from primary sequences. Uh, there's a lot of also excitement about uh, uh, you know AI-based modeling, uh, uh, docking approaches. Um, and, uh, and then optimization approaches in the developability space, which ultimately is required to uh, make, uh, turn a, a molecule into a successful drug. Uh, so we're currently building on, on, on these types of pipelines that are behind uh, the small molecule space simply uh, due to the complexity. Uh, also from a physics-based modeling uh, perspective, uh, just more atoms, more complicated. Uh, but we would say that uh, that's going to be one of the futures uh, earlier than the small molecule space, but uh, at least as much promise, if not more promise than in the small molecule space. And Brian, maybe to tag in there, uh, what do you think is the future for ADCs and what's to come there? From an ADC perspective, uh, we've been seeing a a lot of uh, success stories of, ADCs. uh, It's a combination of having a great target and a great payload. I I think that's what it is. Um, uh, And uh, there's a need for novel targets uh, with a a very selective tissue expression. Whoever comes up with those is going to be a winner in the space. And then in terms of the payload, um, it's about moving beyond, uh, you know, classical tubulin binders into the uh, topo uh space and other other types of payloads which might be immuno payloads um, so there's a lot of payloads you can think about uh, beyond the, the uh, uh, sort of established paradigms of, of current ADC therapeutics but what's absolutely clear with uh, recent success stories especially in breast cancer um, uh, but also in other arenas that that ADCs are here to stay and in our very interesting uh, therapeutic category with a uh, with a, with a future perspective on 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 having a, um, a impact.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, breast cancer, Frank. So we actually just hired our chief development officer, who worked on the InHer2 program, and I think all the avenues you pointed out. It's really exciting to think that we could have another success in the field uh, that's been that exciting, or perhaps more exciting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Frank, before we come to a close, it's been a phenomenal episode and we'd love to tie some threads together here, a few final questions to wrap things up. Um, One that we love to ask our guests comes from Nobel laureate, Dennis Kabor. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? That
2: citation actually resonates quite a bit with me. And I I had actually, I have a, I have a Different type of citation I typically use. It's uh, from actually from Abraham Lincoln. It says the best way to predict the f- your future is to create it. Uh, it's it's all about that forward-looking mind. And I, I mentioned before, uh, especially in pharma, uh, there there's quite a prevalent uh, mindset which often looks into the real-view mirror. And uh, I would I would humbly say that history might uh, rhyme, but it not it doesn't often repeat itself if we. Uh, would have uh, thought uh, or would have had that mindset. Uh, There would have never been the iPhone uh, in your pocket, which is 100,000 times uh, more uh, processing power uh, than the computer that landed a man on the moon 50 years ago. So there is this element of um, thinking about the day after tomorrow and uh, having a futuristic visionary play to win mindset versus um, a, a rear view mirror mindset. And, and that's probably what this citation means from from Dennis Gabor. Uh, you obviously have to combine it with a truth-seeking data-driven approach, but it's absolutely important uh, to look forward and, and actually create your future. Uh, it's a very important part of, of the creative innovation process we're involved in, in, in biopharma. And to build on what we've talked about throughout this
1: episode, we, we've discussed... Many triumphs of life sciences. Many areas ready for prime time. Uh, but we haven't perhaps discussed some of the challenges facing life sciences uh, as we look forward here, Frank. What would you describe as the grand challenges facing life sciences today? And uh, how do you think about tackling some of those?
2: Yeah, I can sense we're getting into the big, uh, big questions here. Uh, the grand challenges also mean the. Uh, the grand opportunities Uh, the the grand challenge for life sciences is that we are in the um, era of life sciences and that it's the conversion of data engineering and life sciences uh, which contributes to this incredible innovation momentum we're experiencing at the moment to do this we have to connect our classical scientific foundations of physics chemistry and biology and each of those went through their Ages when uh, uh, these um, uh, you know types of uh, uh, scientific disciplines had had their heyday, but now it's data sciences and AI, and we need uh, build, build bilingual or multilingual scientists and talents to ultimately uh, make it happen. I, I think the other key area is mastering uh, the modality and technology explosion. If you think about the pharmaceutical industry, which has lived on uh, a simple modality, uh, a single modality, which is small molecules um, for hundreds of years, and then came antibodies. And now we have literally a Cambrian explosion. Uh, This Cambrian period was 500 million years ago when all major animal phyla emerged. We have an explosion of the first gene therapy, the first cell therapy, the first nanobody, the first RNA therapy, and so on. So managing that modality explosion from a an application to the right um, medical problem, but also from a CMC and manufacturing perspective is is going to be absolutely crucial. And then finally, it's the precision medicine topic is how can we ultimately precisely tailor our medicines to patients who are responding and and avoiding uh, safety issues. And and then I think the the final one is uh, is and, and widely distribute those medicines in an equitable way to everybody in 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 our society
1: could not agree more especially as we talk about the future hope that it's one of equitable medicine as well uh, as we look to addressing these challenges Frankie described um another big picture question as you mentioned uh the landscape of pharma as these challenges get addressed and ultimately uh, medicines are built and triumphs for patients are on the way Uh, Can you paint this picture of where pharma will be in 2050 and maybe perhaps Sanofi as well?
2: That's interesting. In 30 years, uh, Sanofi was created 30 years ago in 1990. So if we think about an exponential path uh, of that golden age in life sciences, I I think we see a lot of the topics I I mentioned under the great challenges um, being resolved. Uh, It will be the merger of data sciences with classical chemistry, biology, and physics, Uh, will be the creation of novel modalities to solve the most difficult or intractable problems like cancer or or chronic disease, inflammatory, cardiovascular, neurologic, Uh, uh, the uh, uh, design of smart medicines, a precision medicine approach of tailoring medicines to patient subsets and individual patients, but also I think the empowerment of the patients, the uh, empower a patient who is in control of their data uh, so they don't have to worry about data privacy who are in control of their healthcare journey. Uh, we have a constant feedback via their various connected devices on how their bodies are doing uh, in terms of tissue physiology and pathology and then ultimately use that insight um, to disease intercept instead of uh, therapeutically uh, and try to rescue what has been already broken. So that's a big step to go from a, a, a pathology model where we get the signals of disease too late uh, to a model where we, we early on, based on our genetic risk cause, based on our connected devices, we, we know uh, uh, that we're on a risk journey and we can actually think about a disease interception scenario. It's a bit what we try to do with regain um, in the asthma space. Uh, Imagine you can disease intercept every single asthma attack. Uh, Imagine you can disease intercept every single myocardial infarction, except imagine you can disease intercept a a stroke or or an outbreak of an inflammatory disease. Uh, That's what I hope will be uh, what we're thinking about in 2050. And then ultimately the final point again is making these medicines, interventions, lifestyle choices available to all in an equitable way.
1: Fantastic, Frank. And as we wrap up this episode, uh, hopefully to tie a bow around things, any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our audience?
2: Yeah, I hope I, I sort of convinced you about certainly my excite, excitement and belief that we're in the age of life sciences. And maybe you can also say in the age of human immunology, as speak, speaks the immunology, uh, conflict declared. But it would be a, a, a citation from a Nobel Prize winner, Sidney Brenner, or uh, one of the smartest brains in, in uh, life sciences, and he said, we don't have to search for a model organism anymore because as humans, we are the model organism. I love that. That's great to hear. Um, to wrap things up,
1: uh, we'd love to kind of go through and hear more about your work and how our listeners can uh, get in touch and learn more. Uh, Brian, you, you first perhaps, uh, how can our listeners learn more about your work and Uh, what you're up to these
0: days with mythic therapeutics all right great question Chaz. uh we're located at mythictx.com uh you could also connect with me on linkedin
1: thanks brian and frank for you as well how can our audience learn more about your work and some of the many topics
2: we've touched on today at sanofi you can follow us at science at sanofi on linkedin and twitter and then hopefully by all the future medicines we uh, we produce
1: thank you both Uh, Frank, wonderful to host you in an absolutely fantastic episode. I hope you had some uh, fun with us today. We look forward to having you back on the show. We're very grateful for your time. And thanks again for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.